listening to a UK Stroke Forum International Journal of Stroke collaboration interview with speakers and presenters from the 2010 UK Stroke Forum in Glasgow, UK. Act Now, Assessing Communication Therapy in the Northwest, is a research project which aims to evaluate the effectiveness, cost-effectiveness and service user preferences for communication therapy following stroke. Dr. Audrey Bowen, Senior Lecturer in Psychology, University of Manchester, spoke to the International Journal of Stroke on the eve of the presentation of the preliminary results at the UK Stroke Forum in Glasgow 2010. What are the aims of ACT Now? The aims of the ACT Now study were to determine what was the effectiveness and the cost effectiveness and also to look at the views of the service users and to look at a speech and language therapy intervention, which was for people who'd come into hospital after having a stroke and had aphasia or dysarthria, which are both pretty common communication problems after stroke, although they have very different underlying impairments. Essentially, the impact on the person is that they can have quite uh, marked disabilities in terms of um, activity and participation in daily life. So dysarthria would be um, a motor speech production impairment and aphasia an impairment of the actual ability to process language. Your presentation at the UK Stroke Forum is the preliminary results from ACT Now. Can you outline the trial background? Yes, I mean, the main background is that there's um, a very real need for us to have good interventions to provide to people with stroke and communication problems because around about a third of people after stroke experience long-term problems despite some degree of initial recovery. And so health servers are actually challenged with trying to provide uh, a strong evidence base to um, communication rehabilitation. Um, when we look at the literature into rehabilitation of dysarthria and aphasia, we find firstly in dysarthria that there's actually been very little randomised controlled trial evidence. Um, Cochrane Review um, carried out into this found that there were actually no randomised controlled trials at all relevant to stroke-related dysarthria rehab. And um, the field of aphasia is really quite different. That's a very active field, um, much more uh, complex picture here. There are quite a few differences of opinion on the evidence base. But if I think we refer to the Cochrane Review, that identified 30 randomised control trials. And some of these are very, very old trials, and so um, they are of uh, poor quality or indeterminate quality. Um, but overall, I think there's clear findings from this, which were that we know that prior to the ACNAS study, there has been no economic evaluation of speech and language therapy interventions for this client group. Um, and also that there is an absence of evidence on whether therapy improves uh, people's ability to functionally communicate and the sort of psychosocial outcomes that are relevant to people with stroke. And so overall, concluding on the, the background, the literature in this complex area, it shows that, there are, that therapy shows promise and certainly warrants investigation, but that this investigation needs to be very robustly carried out with, with a clear appropriate control group and very importantly, a well-defined and described speech and language therapy intervention. So I guess that was really the reason why the trial was initiated then, isn't it? That the fact that there was so little... That's right, yes. So within the UK, um, the Department of Health, through its 
National Institute of Health Research Health Technology Assessment Programme reviews the evidence base and on, the, on that determination um, decided that they would commission a study and um, we were selected to carry out this uh, study which started in 2004. Um, and specifically what the United Kingdom government wanted was to evaluate um, an inter speech and language therapy intervention program which would be provided early after stroke. So the ACMAS study is not looking at intervention post six months, for example. We are specifically looking at intervention and in our study typically people received it uh, around about two weeks after stroke, so really quite early. And the other factor was that the intervention within that now was intended to provide information on an intervention which was well-resourced, intensively resourced. Um, and on average, people in the study would have about 20 contacts, 22 contacts. So the fundamental question really, um, reason for carrying this out is to say, are there benefits uh, for users and carers from this intervention? And specifically, if there are, what's the active ingredient? So is this, are any benefits due to speech and language therapy or to the attention that people receive? So what we're trying to do in here, what we're tasked to do was through the use of a comparator attention control group, distinguish between the sort of theoretically driven activities that a therapist can carry out around assessment and intervention and distinguish them from any benefits of the actual intervention itself frequently and regularly with a, a therapist or in our case, in our control group, it was by a, um, a person employed as we call them a visitor, a part-time employed person. Could you please describe the actual trial design and its strengths? Yeah, we have three different methods that go together to make up ACT now. We have a randomised controlled trial, and then a health economic evaluation, and alongside that, um, and very much supportive of it, is a substantial qualitative study. Um, at the moment, we're working through all of the results, which will be coming out uh, in the next couple of months. We're focusing at the moment on the randomised controlled trial. And so tell you quite a bit about that design and strength. It's very much a pragmatic study. So for example, it's about features such as determination of which stroke patients were eligible to be research participants was decided by the um, health service therapists who are in the study. Um, we have several uh, methodological features to reduce bias. So we have random allocation of eligible patients um, and that's further strengthened by the fact that we took baseline measurements of people such as whether they have the diagnosis, whether it was dysarthria or aphasia or both in some cases, and the severity of those baseline um, impairments. And we carried out um, stratification on those factors. We also have features such as um, blinded primary outcome assessment, which is really quite important. Um, so we have our primary outcome assessment captures a meaningful, meaningful functional communication activity. It's a conversation that's recorded onto video and the blinded assessor um, looks at that and makes their judgment using a standardised assessment measure, the therapy outcome measure. 
um, other features that I think are a strength of ACT now are that timing. When we do the assessment is important. Um, our outcome assessments are at six months. And that's very important to collect evidence to look at the stability of any immediate benefits that there may be beyond the end of therapy. Um, our other aspects are that we have secondary outcome measures, which include, and this is a very important uh, feature, particularly within the UK at the moment, and I suspect in other countries, is to include the patient's own perspective and the carer's own perspective of the quality of that intervention. And so we have um, developed a patient-reported outcome measure or a patient-centred outcome measure of our own and carer's measures. Um, and I think probably, finally, just to stress that um, the nature of our control group is really a strength of this design. Um, as I said, it's an attention control group. And so that is controlling for this um, provision of early and intensively resourced contact. So all participants in the study will receive the, potentially, if it's appropriate for them, receive the same um, earliness and amount of contact and what alters, what varies and what we're comparing is whether they see a speech and language therapist or whether they see a non-therapist and that will be the comparison of outcomes at six months. What data do you use to develop the patient and carer's measures? The patient and carer's measures we've actually published because this is part of our feasibility study, we've published around this so what we did was we worked with a group of people who had a stroke and their carers, and they formed a research user group. They worked with us for six years throughout the study. And we reviewed the existing measures out there, felt that they were rather failing, but worked with this user group to determine which were the features of their communication and the aspects of their lives that are affected by communication disability that they felt should be captured in order to um, truly evaluate whether a therapy was effective and, and cost effective. And so with that user group, we identified uh, through a course of several uh, meetings uh, items, which we then took into a separate validation study with another 100 people who had a stroke to look at methodological features of those measurement items, such as whether they were reliable, um, over time and if different uh, um, if different people were actually completing them. And uh, so that's the process that we use to actually develop from, from the ground up, really, uh, the items that went into that patient-reported outcome measure, which we call the COAST, and which we have uh, several publications around at the moment in the journals, uh, clinical rehab and the physiology. You highlight using professional speech therapists and not volunteers in your talk for the UK Stroke Forum. And I wondered, mm. are volunteers being used in some hospital situations in the UK and has this affected the results or is it some other reason? It hasn't affected our results if it is being used, if volunteers are being used. Um, and the reason it hasn't is because when we initially uh, set up our feasibility study, we thought that we would use volunteers, that volunteers would provide the attention control and they would be compared against the speech and language therapists. In actual fact, it was impossible to organise for all sorts of um, 
reasons to do with research approvals and the governance of research, but also trying to provide an early and intensively resort intervention on the goodwill of busy volunteers was just not possible. Um, our therapy, our intervention and therapy are set up to provide a maximum of up to three times a week, up to four months, and that's a huge time commitment. So our study decided that it wasn't feasible to um, actually use volunteers, and in our main trial, we actually provided the attention control with people who were employed. These were the part-time paid visitors. So the data we collect says nothing, tells us nothing, isn't intended to, about whether volunteers can actually um, be involved in this type of early intervention. Um, to the best of my knowledge, there are, we have quite active uh, charitable organisations around stroke and specifically to help people with communication problems in the UK. And they have got various schemes around the country where volunteers get involved in supporting people. Um, but that will vary from place to place. Do you think the outcomes of this study will change clinical practice? Really what we found was that, first of all, we look at whether the whether the design worked well, the randomized control trial achieved what it was meant to do. So we look at, um, and we find that the sample that we included, which is 170 people with, with who'd had a new stroke, they were actually representative of the target population. So that's comparing people who consent to take part and people who decline. Um, then we also look at whether at baseline, those allocated to the speech and language therapy group appear similar to those allocated to the control group, and we find um, no, no differences in the types of characteristics that we're looking at, the severity of the communication impairment, for example. But we did find that the um, speech and language therapy group had slightly less stability in, in our analysis. We need to make adjustments for that. Um, and the other thing in terms of the design work really was that we all captured, we measured exactly how many contacts participants had with either a therapist or a visitor. We found there was very good uptake, good concordance with that. And it's, uh, they're very similar looking figures, a little higher for speech and language therapy. Um, when it comes to six months after the um, six months outcomes, we're comparing the two groups on outcomes. And what we actually found was that we didn't find um, the difference that the study was powered to detect. Um, so we were looking for a half point difference on the therapy outcome measure, expecting that the people allocated to speech and language therapy would do better than people in attention control. And that, um, that wasn't there. Um, we carried out various sensitivity analyses, um, but actually the findings are very robust. I mean, however we analyse these data, what we find is there isn't any suggestion of an added benefit of the speech and language therapy intervention over and above the attention control at this early stage after stroke. And what we're trying to explore really, and the impact this has, your question relating to will it change clinical practice, is why might that be? One suggestion is that, um, that neither, neither therapy nor the attention control are actually beneficial to people, or perhaps both groups are improving. 
And what we, ha what we have in our study is the ability to actually track people from baseline up to six months, where we can see that actually both groups do improve. They make a meaningful improvement. If you look at everybody, all 170 together, there is a, a good functional measurable difference improvement. It's 0.8 on the therapy outcome uh, measure. And as I said, we were powered to detect 0.5. So we can see a, we can see a clear improvement in people's functional communication. But as I say, that is uh, regardless of whether people saw a therapist or a visitor. And so what we're needing to do is to explore what's in common then between the two arms of the study. Um, there is, of course, the possibility that some of this improvement may be to do with spontaneous recovery. Um, but the other factors to look at are that everybody is getting this pretty early, intensively resourced one-to-one -one attention from whether they're a therapist or a visitor, they're both very organized, confident people with empathy who are providing, and this is where our qualitative study really helps us and really adds uh, depth to our quantitative data. The qualitative study shows us that people are um, highlighting that their confidence has improved, that they feel that this, this um, type of contact has enabled them to grow in the awareness of the communication. It's offered them the opportunity to practice their functional communication, be it with a therapist or a visitor, and, and aspects to do with having a kind of sense of how they're progressing after their stroke. Um, and so our conclusion really over that is that it's probably a little too early after stroke for some of the very specific theoretically driven speech and language therapy tasks but it does not appear to be too early for us to for us to be suggesting that there is an intervention for these people with stroke because indeed as we know the qualitative study shows us that people really value this early and intensively resourced contact and we also know from the data we collected that people have that there's very high uptake um, on average about 22 contacts people are, are actually having with visitors and therapists. And we're just starting now to look at economic data. So I'm, I can't say very much about that today, but one thing that is striking is that contrary to expectation, there really is no extra cost to this being delivered by a speech and language therapist once you, once you actually take into the model the different salaries of therapists versus part-time paid visitors, but also um, potential benefits such as length of stay and use of other health and social services. And so on balance, it wouldn't actually cost any more for therapy. And so our suggestions are at the moment are around thinking about how early services for uh, people with communication problems might be reorganized rather than decommissioned. Um, and my own personal opinion on this is that um, to, to withdraw an early speech and language therapy service at this point um, is not warranted by these data, by this evidence. And in fact, the, the evidence is saying that people really wish to use these services and may well be benefiting from these services over and above spontaneous recovery. And that we, we really, if the service, if the therapist were to be withdrawn from early services at this point, 
so it's really difficult to predict what other adverse events there possibly may be on the, for example, the, the working of the rest of the multidisciplinary team and on other psychological areas of people with stroke. Um, so I think our uh, cautious recommendations at this point are to be to say that there are several strands of evidence that come from the ACNAS study and it is more than just the results of the, um, of the randomized control trial and that we need to also look at the work that the data that's coming out about the resource use and about a very strong message coming from service users and carers about the value they place on having this quite um, early and well-resourced intervention. So do you think now you'll be able to generate other research initiatives from these results? I think there are many, yes. As always, there are many questions that come from the end of a study. Um, certainly there is a very practical question about if we are to use this model of this early um, intensively resourced contact with people with stroke, if we take that model and work with speech and language therapists around how they could reorganize, it would be very interesting to do a research evaluation of the effectiveness of that. And what I mean is that we could perhaps be investigating uh, a stepped model whereby speech and language therapists role in the very early days after stroke might be more around training and supervising assistance, more in, in line with our visitors in our study, um, and, that the, and that the stepped approach is that slightly at a later date, speech and language therapy resources, they might do their direct contact, their interventions, the theoretically driven work and assessments with people slightly further down the line, so that what we'd be what we think would be useful to explore and to evaluate in a subsequent study is this value of a stepped approach where the early work is around focusing on people's confidence, their awareness of the problem, their adjustment and giving them lots of meaningful practice of communication as a readiness to prepare people to actually engage in that um, detailed one-to-one -one work and potentially group work with speech and language therapists. This interview was a collaboration between the International Journal of Stroke and UK Stroke Forum. You can find this series on iTunes and at the UK Stroke Forum website. This podcast was created by Carmen Leigh Jenkins, Managing Editor of the International Journal of Stroke, which is the flagship publication for the World Stroke Organization. Please consider becoming a member of the World Stroke Organization. Go to www.world-stroke.org.